of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast, available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode this story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. It's Accidental Anne Radcliffe Week. Yep. <laughs> Today is part two of the life of Anne Radcliffe, who is considered in many ways one of the pioneers of gothic fiction. You'll see that phrase thrown about a lot. Uh, in part one, we talked about Anne's early life and her marriage and her literary career, which she abruptly stepped away from after publishing her fifth novel, The Italian. Today, we will pick up right there, starting with the many theories that people started to come up with about why she stopped publishing her work. Some of these are ones that happened right then, and others have developed over time uh, via literary historians. So, yeah. As we mentioned last time, Radcliffe had a brief but also extremely successful few-year career of publishing novels, and there were a lot of theories about why she stopped. One was that she wanted to step away from writing fiction, and gothic fiction in particular, because it was a problematic genre. Well before Anne, this genre had had sort of a seedy reputation at the worst— status as more of a pulpy trash kind of fiction at best. I feel like this is not a surprising perception to anyone who has, like, read horror or other genre fiction today. Anne was really the standout, though, and her insistence that she was writing romances may have been an effort on her part to try to align her work 
with another genre, one that was not gothic or horror. And during her, again, very successful, but very brief career, she was lauded for elevating gothic writing. Other writers were perceived as going in the opposite direction. For example, Matthew Lewis released The Monk in 1796, and it featured a monk named Ambrosio and his struggle with the temptation of lustful desires. It also had a number of other salacious elements and created a total scandal when it hit the market, particularly as it featured women also being tempted by sexual desire. And there were comparisons made between her work and his, and she did not like that. So this may have been another reason that she stepped away from a successful career. That was a theory that Sir Walter Scott publicly supported. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those things where, again, we mentioned in the last episode that she made what was for the time a lot of money on her last two books. And other people immediately kind of do that thing where they try to run to where the lightning struck last and see if they can get in on that same kind of success. And so a lot of people started churning out their versions of gothic romances, which were often very... um very trashy by the standards of the day. <laughs> if we read them today, we'd be like, this is really tame. But at the time, right. the idea that a woman was grappling with sexual attraction and whether or not to act on it was like pornography to them in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, so another aspect of her experience as an author that may have made her no longer wish to publish was a barrage of attacks in literary circles. There were a few different kinds of these, but there's one example which seems to have been particularly painful for Radcliffe, although it happened after she had retired, but it may have kept her from going back to publishing. In this case, confusion had arisen when a work titled Plays on the Passions was published anonymously in 1798. Anne and William were visiting the country for William's health at the time. They didn't know anything about it, but there was a lot of speculation going around London about whether the plays were actually Anne Radcliffe's work. They were not. They were the work of dramatist Joanna Bailey. That was revealed in 1800 when Bailey acquiesced to include her name on the third printing. The way this story and Radcliffe's dismay about it all plays out is a bit of a social and timeline tangle, so we're going to work through it pretty carefully. I hope I even got it right. I read several different accounts of it, like several different layouts of it. It's very confusing, so we're we're going slow for my benefit more than anyone's. Uh, This particular drama that happened did not get to Radcliffe until years after the fact, when she was already retired. And at that point, one of the key players had already died, but it still was very upsetting. So first, we have to introduce Anna Seward, who was a poet and a woman of letters born in 1742. Her nickname was the Swan of Litchfield. She was really connected to sort of everyone of social and intellectual standing in England in the late 18th century. She died in 1809, more than a decade after Plays on the Passions came out. In 1811, Seward's letters were published posthumously as Letters of Anna Seward, written between the years 1784 and 1807. Whereas Anne Radcliffe left behind almost no examples of personal correspondence when she died, Anna Seward left behind a lot. Her letters filled six volumes. And a letter that was included in the fifth volume from May 1799, written to Sarah Ponsonby, who we talked about in our Ladies of Langcoffin episode, 
Anne Radcliffe's name comes up. Specifically, Anna Seward is relaying to Sarah Ponsonby the impression that another woman, named only as Mrs. Jackson, had of the plays on the passions and why she thought Anne Radcliffe was the anonymous author. This opinion is not kind. So, in what's attributed to this Mrs. Jackson, the description is as follows. Quote, before the author was known... I observed so much of the power and defects of Mrs. Radcliffe's composition in these dramas as to believe them hers, and I hear she owns them. Mrs. Radcliffe, in whatever she writes, attentive solely to the end, is not sufficiently attentive to observe probability in the means she uses to attain it. She bends her plan, or if it will not bend, she breaks it to her catastrophe by making it grow out of preceding events." Still, she always takes hold of the reader's feelings and affects her purpose boldly, if not regularly. Her descriptive talent used to satiety in her novels is here employed with more temperance and consequently to better purpose. This is an interesting setup in and of itself because it's like we already know who the who the true writer is at this point because it, it opens with before the writer was known. But then it also says, I think she owns them. And I'm like, I don't. It's what's going on here? Um, gossip. So at the point when all of this correspondence was published, it was known to absolutely everyone that Joanna Bailey had written the plays on the passions. But it is also apparent that Seward and her friends continued to gossip about whether Anne had written them for a while after that letter. And Seward also accused Radcliffe of basically plagiarizing another writer, William Godwin, when it came to the plot of the plays which she had not written. Seward also wrote to another person a month after the Sarah Ponsonby letter, this time to a Reverend Wally, that, quote, in all Mrs. Radcliffe's writings, attentive only to terrific effects, she bestows no care upon their causes and rashly cuts the knot of probability which she seems to want patience to untie. One has heard of a laboring mountain bringing forth a mouse. In Mrs. R's writings, mice bring forth mountains. Even once the confusion over who exactly had written plays on the passions had been cleared up, Anna Seward still wrote some barbs about Radcliffe in her correspondence, noting in one letter that even though the plays have some of the same problems that Radcliffe's work has, she did always think some sections were just too good to have been her work. Biographer Richter Norton noted in his 1999 book that the Mrs. Jackson who started this rumor that Radcliffe had written the plays was Eliza E. Jackson, who was a very smart woman who, along with Seward and several other ladies of England's Salon Society, seemed to like to just talk trash about Anne Radcliffe in their letters, just in case you thought people hating on successful creatives was a brand new thing. Yeah, this reads like so many drama spirals within the worlds of like authors and publishing. Yes. That I've seen play out on social media. Yeah. We're just doing the same thing over and over. None of us are original. (laughs) When Seward's letters were published in 1811, all of this was hugely upsetting to Anne. She tried to track down Mrs. Jackson, first hearing that she was in Bath and then in Edinburgh to set the record straight. Mrs. Jackson knew Sir Walter Scott, and Radcliffe was worried that he might believe the rumors that made her look like she would let other people think she wrote something that she had not written. The reality was she didn't know anything about anyone attributing Bailey's work to her until just way later. 
Uh, so to outsiders, her silence on this whole matter may have looked like she was, like, enjoying all of this attention. She wasn't. She had no idea any of this was going on for a decade, which also reminds me of the many times I have seen someone on whatever social media saying, so-and-so has not even acknowledged this. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, because they were not online at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, she and William were both very upset about all of this and how it was going to make her look and that people might think ill of her for something she wasn't even aware of. But she didn't manage to find Mrs. Jackson. By the time she looked her up in Edinburgh, I believe through one of her lawyers, she was not living there any longer. So she could not source the origin point of this rumor. So she didn't feel comfortable reaching out to Joanna Bailey, although she wanted to, to assure her that she would never let a rumor continue that suggested anyone else's work was her own. Because there was no resolution to this whole thing, it really weighed on her for a long time. In a biography written shortly after her death, the writer states, quote, the subject, which was always painful to her, is rather now alluded to as an instance of the singular apprehensiveness of her moral sense than as at all required for the vindication of her character. So one of the aspects of her having a pretty small social circle in her life that probably wound up causing her some grief was that in these instances where other people said something about her that caused her to feel hurt or wronged, those things seemed even larger than they might have if she had had, like, a bigger, wider social circle as a backdrop to kind of dilute the impact of all of it. It really seems like Anne was subjected to the barbs of fame without really indulging in any of its luxuries. And to her, these comments never seemed offhanded. They always felt like or seemed to be very pointed attacks. Yeah, she, you know, um, when you're not talking to everybody and you're not in the noise of like a bigger social sphere, it seems like everyone is talking about me and saying that I let someone think I wrote some, something that I didn't and I never would. Uh, but like to those people, probably anyone who was part of that or had moved on from it didn't even remember it. But to Anne, it was very, very heartbreaking. Coming up, we're going to talk about the weird rumors that circulated about Anne, including the time that she was reported as dead when she was still very much alive. But before that, we will take a quick sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel, for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Anne Radcliffe's low-profile life also led at one point to the false rumor that she had died well before her time came. In 1810, a poem called Ode to Terror was published, and that stated rather confidently that the author had died a deranged woman. She was still very much alive. There were also some additional extraordinarily outlandish claims about her life. There was one that went around that she ate raw meat before bed to fuel nightmares to give her inspiration so she could get back to writing her terror novels. Uh, She chose not to address any such rumors publicly. Now, there is, to me, a bit of coincidence in all of this, because Radcliffe's own writings were full of things that seemed terrifying or fantastic, but then turned out to be mundane. And if her speculating fans or public had learned anything from her novels, they may have come to the boring but truthful conclusion that her retirement was just that. It was the understandable and mundane desire of a woman who just wanted to retire from work. As Anne and William got older, their twice-yearly travels became less frequent and shorter in distance, although they did keep spending summers traveling by carriage around London and the surrounding area and just stopping wherever their hearts desired. Sometime around 1810 or 1811, Anne began having serious issues with asthma, and her health generally declined. In the autumn of 1822, she visited the seaside town of Ramsgate in the hopes of improving her health, and she was refreshed by it temporarily. In early January, she had what one biographer called an, quote, attack of her disease. Uh, 
Per that account, which we're going to talk about in a little more depth in a moment, a doctor was called two days after her issues began, arriving on January 11th, 1823. In an odd detail in that account, it stated that she read about a recent murder a couple of weeks later, and that due to her weakened state and the shock of this information that she read, which the biographer says happened accidentally, she experienced a temporary delirium. But though that passed and she was doing well the first week of February, Anne Radcliffe died in her sleep on February 7th, 1823. Perhaps more unsettling than anything Radcliffe ever wrote in her work was her biographer's claim that, quote, her countenance after death was delightfully placid and continued so for some days. She was interred at St. George's at Hanover Square in the Chapel of Ease. Yeah, I'm like... She she just, you just watched her look peaceful for several days. Okay. Um, Perhaps indicative of the quiet style of her life, there were not a ton of obituaries in the papers the way that you would normally expect to see for a famous person. The ones that do appear are brief. One from the Yorkshire Herald reads in its entirety, quote, On Friday week, Mrs. Anne Radcliffe, the wife of William Radcliffe, Esquire of Stafford Place, Pimlico. Uh, This is like... That's the whole sentence because it's like a list of of obituaries. So when you're like, that doesn't make sense. That's why. She had been indisposed for some time with a violent cold, which terminated in inflammation and took from this life the much-admired author of The Mysteries of Udolpho and other works of imagination and genius almost equally popular. Among the female ornaments of English literature, she will long hold one of the highest places. Mrs. R. was, we believe, between 50 and 60 years of age. She was a lady of the most amiable and interesting character, possessed not only of all the accomplishments, but all the virtues that could adorn her sex. She had lived long enough to see her own work satirized. Shortly after Jane Austen's death in 1817, her novel, Northanger Abbey, was published, This story is a satire of gothic novels, and uh, one of the characters is given a copy of Mysteries of Udolpho. Austin is said to have completed this book in 1803, so it would have been a fairly fresh response to Radcliffe's famous works being part of the zeitgeist of the time. In 1826, Radcliffe's last work of fiction was published, titled Gaston de Blondeville. She probably called it Gaston de Blondeville. We don't know. She had actually written this book well before her death in 1802 after being inspired by a visit to Kenilworth Castle, but she chose not to publish it. The book is set in Anne's contemporary time, but the bulk of it was a story within a story that's set in the 13th century. And it was, according to the accompanying text that it got with publication, never intended to be published, but it was written merely as an amusement for Anne and William. Preceding the release of this book in October 1825, the Sunday Dispatch of London ran a blurb that read, Mr. Radcliffe, husband of the great enchantress Anne Radcliffe, author of The Mysteries of Adolfo, The Italian, The Romance of the Forest, etc., and who died about the year 1823, has at length, though very reluctantly, consented to publish a romance which this celebrated lady left behind her. The plot of Gaston de Blanville is very much in line with Radcliffe's other books. The 13th century story unfolded at his wedding, which is held in the court of King Henry III. When Gaston is accused of murder by a merchant at the event, the king holds a trial to uncover all of the evidence. 
There is a biography of her at the beginning of the book written by Sir Thomas Noon Talford with information supplied in part by William. This is the biography we mentioned earlier. Um, it's I originally was calling it a brief biography, but then I realized it takes up a full one third of the book. Um, and the rest of her work is the next two thirds. <laughs> This book begins with the following rather charming and quaint description. And when I say quaint, I mean, I, I'm, I mean that in a way that is maybe not uh, the kindest. Quote, the life of Mrs. Radcliffe is a pleasing phenomenon in the literature of her time. During a period in which the spirit of personality has extended its influence till it has rendered the habits and conversation of authors almost as public as their compositions, she confines herself with delicate apprehensiveness to the circle of domestic duties and pleasures. Known only by her works, her name was felt as a spell by her readers. We'll talk more about this biography, but Telford's uh, biography, which is written, it's described as a, a biographical memoir, suggested that Radcliffe retired from publishing when she did because she didn't see a way to surpass her last two novels and thought it better to retire on top. This opening also goes on to mention that once she'd retired from her fiction career, the supernatural tone of her writing led her devoted fan base to come up with all kinds of wild stories about what had happened to her and why she stopped publishing. There were rumors that she had died or that she had a mental illness, but the reality was most likely that she had made enough money from her work. She didn't need to work anymore unless she wanted to. And at that point, she wrote mostly for herself. This 1826 biography states that she was, quote, thankfully enjoying the choicest blessings of life with a cheerfulness as equable as if she had never touched the secret springs of horror. Now, that mention of horror would have probably irked Anne Radcliffe. <laughs> While she was considered the grand dame of Gothic fiction, to her there was a very important distinction between terror and horror. And she wrote about that in an unfinished essay that was included with the publication of Gaston de Blanville, titled On the Supernatural in Poetry, which means it was published right alongside this memoir. She wrote in it, Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. I apprehend that neither Shakespeare nor Milton by their fictions, nor Mr. Burke by his reasoning, anywhere looked to positive horror as a source of the sublime, though they all agree that terror is a very high one. That Mr. Burke she referenced there was Edmund Burke. She was making a callback to his essay, A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, in which he suggested that terror was a source of the sublime and that it could be used to produce the strongest of human emotions. And in a move that seems sort of weird, there's a statement from Anne's doctor in the introductory biography. It's intended to put to rest all the various rumors of madness Dr. Scudmore's statement reads, quote, Mrs. Radcliffe had been for several years subject to severe catarrhal coughs and also was occasionally afflicted with asthma. In March 1822, she was ill with inflammation of the lungs and for a considerable time remained much indisposed. With the summer season and change of air, she regained a tolerable state of health. 
In the early part of January 1823, in consequence of exposure to the cold, she was again attacked with inflammation of the lungs and much more severely than before. Active treatment was immediately adopted, but without the desired relief, and the symptoms soon assumed a most dangerous character. At the end of three weeks, however, and contrary to all expectation, the inflammation of the lungs was overcome, and the amendment was so decided as to present a slight prospect of recovery. Alas, our hopes were soon disappointed. Suddenly, in the very moment of seeming calm from the previous violence of disease, a new inflammation seized the membranes of the brain. The enfeebled frame could not resist this fresh assault, so rapid in their course were the violent symptoms that medical treatment proved wholly unavailing. In the space of three days, death closed the melancholy scene. The doctor's statement goes on to say that other than the end, when she had a brain infection, Mrs. Radcliffe's mind, quote, was perfect in its reasoning powers. All of this information, which is odd to have a doctor's statement <laughs> biography was included, though, according to Telford, because in the wake of Anne's death, the rumors of mental illness had begun again. But the rest of the memoir of Anne Radcliffe that he wrote reads so flowery in its praise of her that there have been a lot of questions over the years as to whether this was kind of a very carefully developed piece of writing intended to establish the most perfect version of her on the public record. And when we say flowery praise... Here's the kind of thing we're talking about. It described her in terms like exquisitely proportioned and perfectly well-bred. So it kind of feels like he's going beyond what you might normally write about someone, even if you deeply admire them. So is this a scenario where the biographer was simply prone to flowery wording, or is it one where there is a clear intention to really puff up the subject's image? We don't really know. Um... One bit of insight that comes from Talford's analysis of Radcliffe's work, because that's also included here, is that she always explained the scary components in her books as simply following the rules and conventions of Gothic novels. She felt that she did not have the leeway as a creator to claim that something supernatural was real. That's something that she was often criticized for, like, oh, why do you dial it back at the end? But that is the explanation that Talford gave. Whether that's true or not, it's certainly an interesting take. Next, we'll talk about the volume of poetry that was published after Anne Radcliffe's death, and we'll get to that and its less-than-enthusiastic reviews after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Annabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Annabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Radcliffe's epic poem, St. Albans Abbey, was also published posthumously. It was not well received. (laughs) Biographer Ruth Facer wrote of it, quote, it does her no justice. It is long, rambling, and tedious. Um, I will give you the poem's opening stanza, which will give you a pretty clear indication of what the whole thing is like. Uh, Know ye that pale and ancient choir whose Norman tower lifts its pinnacled spire, where the long abbey aisle extends and battled roof or roof ascends, Cornered with buttresses, shapely and small, that sheltered the saint in a canopied stall, and lightened with hanging turrets fair that so proudly their dental coronals wear. They blend with a holy, a warlike air while they guard the martyr's tomb beneath and patient warriors laid in death. This wasn't the first time her poetry had been published, but it was the first time an authorized book of her poetry was released In 1816, an unauthorized book was assembled from various pieces of poetry that she had included in the narratives of her prose. Christina Rossetti, the mid-19th century writer famous for Goblin Market and other poems, attempted a biography of Radcliffe during her career, but found that there just was not enough material available to her to complete it. That project was intended to be part of a series initiated by John Ingram titled Eminent Women. 
But aside from a handful of brief biographies that did not hold a lot of information, there's the one from Talford we talked about and one from Sir Walter Scott, Rossetti was only able to turn up a short letter and a small amount of journal material, which was about travel details. For example, the kinds of things that Anne wrote in her travel journals were things like, quote, made our way in the gig through the long, narrow streets and then, leaving Chatham on the left, mounted a very steep road, having wide views of Chatham, the docks, the shipping, the new barracks, a town themselves, rising up a hill with cannon and two small artificial hills with flags. A great prospect, but too broken and full of scars and angles of fortifications and other buildings and excavations to be quite pleasing. So it's an interesting example of writing about surroundings and the details she included, but it doesn't really offer insights into the author's personal story and probably wouldn't help a biography much beyond, like, she was in this place at this time. Anne Radcliffe had not, to the best of anyone's knowledge, kept a personal journal or written friends or family about her private thoughts and feelings. Her descriptions of places often read like little stories, but they're about the things she saw and her imagined life for them. When visiting Knoll House in the town of Seven Oaks, southeast of London in 1807, she wrote of this home's impressive portrait gallery, quote, in the little closet of entrance, the countenance of Gardini, the composer, gives you the idea that he is listening to the long-drawn notes of his own violin. Holbein's Erasmus in the gallery must be truth itself. There are some exceptions, but they're kind of few and fleeting. For example, in one entry while she and William were visiting Seaford in the late 1790s, Anne, who really loved that visit, wrote an entry that gives insight into her religious views and her feelings on having lost her parents. Quote, Saw the sunset behind one of the vast hills. The silent course over this great scene awful, the departure melancholy. O God, thy great laws will one day be more fully known by thy creatures. We shall more fully understand thee and ourselves. The God of order and of all this and of far greater grandeur, the creator of that glorious sun, which never fails in its course, will not neglect us, his intelligent though frail creatures, not suffer us to perish who have the consciousness of our mortal fate long before it arrives and of him. He who called us from nothing can again call us from death into life. In this month, on the 24th of July, my dear father died two years since. On the 14th of last March, my poor mother followed him. I am the last leaf on the tree. The melancholy greatness with which I was surrounded this evening made me very sensible of this. This lack of ready information about Anne might have been part of why for a long time scholarly interest in her work really died back quite a bit. What there was of it was often riddled with assumptions or colored by the rumors of madness that had sprung up while Anne was still alive. The texts of her books had been the bulk of what people actually knew and little else. It wasn't until the late 20th century that biographers really started trying to dig deeper into what might be available to piece together the otherwise disparate pieces of information that were known about her personal life. Literature professor Dale Townsend, writing for the British Library in 2014, points to David Puncher's book, The Literature of Terror, released in 1980, as the spark that reignited scholarly interest in Radcliffe. 
We did find mention of her in major press that predated that, though. So it wasn't as though no one was talking about Anne Radcliffe and her work. Um, The press mention that I found and read was in The Guardian in the summer of 1964, and it was part of an article by Donald Thomas that was titled Queen of Terrors and was all about Anne. One of the biographies published since then, Mistress of Udolpho, was written by historian Richter Norton in 1999. And it offered up details which had not been known until Norton hunted them down in obscure places. One of the things that Norton points out, which is often left out of the more brief narratives regarding Radcliffe, is that she was definitely a classist. She could be really condescending to people that she perceived as of a lower class than herself. Yeah, he he shares some examples of them. Um, and it is a little like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> That's a pity. Uh, In 2014, there was a surprise in the Anne Radcliffe story when a letter that she had written her mother-in-law was found amongst a batch of other miscellaneous letters by Greg Boswell, a British library curator. That letter, which is dated August 31st, 1797, reads... Dear Madam, we are concerned to hear such frequent complaints. The reasonableness of things in Yorkshire is well known, but without insisting upon that, if you cannot be accommodated with the necessaries of life and without being a burden to anybody, if the supplies which William sends are not sufficient, we can only desire you to come and live with us, where you shall always find plenty, whatever you may do elsewhere." You will recollect the unwillingness which William formerly expressed to send money to you at Broughton and your positive desire and assurances upon the subject. In my last, I assured you we did not for a moment suppose you had received a two-pound note when you assured us to the contrary, and it was therefore unnecessary for you to vindicate yourself again. He joins me in love and good wishes to you, and I remain, dear madam, your affectionate A. Radcliffe. So it seems like William and Anne had sent William's mother, Deborah Radcliffe, some money, but it had not arrived. So Anne's essentially saying, this would be a heck of a lot easier if you would move to London so we could take care of you. Mr. Buswell believes this may be an indicator that Anne's relationship with Deborah had informed the strained relationship between the character of Elena Rosalba in the book The Italian and her fictional mother-in-law. I do love that bit at the end of like, I, you told me you didn't get it. I believed you. You don't have to keep telling me. <laughs> there are two quotes that make the most sense, to me at least, to end on when summing up the life of Anne Radcliffe. The first is by Sir Walter Scott, and it sums up her literary life. Quote, Mrs. Radcliffe, as an author, has the most decided claim to take her place among the favored few who have been distinguished as the founders of a class or school. She led the way in a particular style of composition, affecting powerfully the mind of the reader, which has since been attempted by many, but in which no one has attained or approached the excellencies of the original inventor. In his biography of Anne Radcliffe, Richter Norton wrote this description of her, which seems like a good place to end things since it sums her up not so much as a writer, but as a person. Quote, The public image of Mrs. Radcliffe as a mad genius and the sensational nature of her novels are in sharp contrast to the ordinary preoccupations of her middle-class domestic life. She loved dogs and music, enjoyed excursions to Dover and Worthing, was fond of the sound of Greek, though she could not understand a word of it, and felt it was at least as important to be considered a gentlewoman as a genius. 
Anne Radcliffe. I hope we find tons more stuff of hers, but I doubt we will. Yeah. Like somewhere there's a cache of letters where she's like, those mean girls. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. Um, I have listener mail. This is another one that goes back to um, William Morgan, the gift that keeps giving, because I uh, lots of people have thoughts about William Morgan. This one is from our listener, Alice, who writes, Thank you, Holly and Tracy, for the recent podcast on William Morgan. I listened with special interest remembering a news article I'd seen on my second great-grandfather's connection to Morgan. Judge Moses Taggart Esquire, my second great-grandfather, was credited with a part in the memorial to Morgan in 1882. I'm including a link to one article citing Taggart's participation. My ancestors have a long history as judges, postmasters, and attorneys in Batavia. I sincerely wish I could get back there to visit. Thank you for helping to bring this bit of my history to life a little. From that paper... She includes a quote. A few weeks later, it is reported in the same paper that the wetland ladies had supplemented Mrs. Morgan's little New Year's gift with $20. Her card of acknowledgement is worth reading. The undersigned tenders to the ladies of Wheatland her warmest expressions of gratitude for their friendly condolence and benevolent and well-timed donation. Such expressions of kindness serve to gladden the heart of a disconsolate and helpless female suffering under one of the most singular and distressing bereavements that has ever befallen her sex. She is a stranger in a strange land and dependent on charity for support. This affecting epistle was written, it is said, by Mr. Taggart, a lawyer of Batavia, who at the dedication of Morgan's Monument at Batavia, September 11th, 1882, was among the liveliest in his reminiscences of that martyr. Um, Alice also attaches pictures of fur babies. Gandalf the Grey and Bonds, who are 12 years old, um, and very beautiful babies, both of them. Um, I don't know. We have 12-year-old cats that I think are speeding up. I'm a little scared of it, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, Alice, thank you so much for sharing this. I always love when people have connections to the stories that we tell. Uh, if you have such a connection, maybe you have a secret letter from Ann Radcliffe. Please write us if you do. <laughs> you can do that at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And uh, it's a great time to subscribe to the show if you haven't already you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts stuff you missed in history class is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 
Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.